Hey there, friends. Welcome to Having a Blast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo and indie podcast where we'll be doing deep dives on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. And today is one of those episodes in which we will be speaking to a band member, a good friend of mine. His name is Rishi, Rishi Ball. Rishi and I, we go way back. The first time Game Time ever played Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we met this lovely band called the Space Pimps. And Rishi was a larger-than-life personality. He was the singer of that band. And they later changed their name to Eternal Boy, so he is now the frontman for Eternal Boy. Great band as well. They've got three albums online. Definitely check it out. they got a new record coming out next year, early next year. The first single from the new album, entitled A Long Year, is on all the streaming platforms right now. Had a great time with those guys, really enjoyed playing with them. Love the city, Pittsburgh. It's a great city, so if you ever get a chance to go and you haven't been, it's definitely one of those great American cities. Rishi is busy. He is a college professor of marketing. We kind of talk a little bit about how marketing and being in a band, how there are parallels to both and how you have to become okay with the idea that you're going to be marketing yourself and marketing your product, which is your band and yourself. And that's essentially what you're doing when you're in a band is you're marketing yourself, you're marketing your music, which is your product. Rishi is also not only the singer of a busy band, but he's also in charge of the Four Chord Music Festival as well as Four Chord Music, the label as well. So he's he's a busy guy. I was really appreciative of him taking the time to chat with me today. We had a blast catching up, talk about a lot of things, talk about early 2000s. We definitely talk about marketing and how it's important to use marketing skills when you're branding your band. We even talk a little bit about the best albums of the early 2000s in the pop punk genre. So. Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with my good friend, Rishi Ball. What up, dude? What up, man? Good to see you. Long time, man. I know, dude. It's probably been, what, like 16 years or something? About 2000. Five. We broke up the summer of 2004, so it must have been 2004, I think. What the Long fuck, time. dude? <laughs> right? I can't. I can't believe you guys went that long without getting back together. Yeah. We've so is it for real? It. Are you guys for real coming back, getting back together? Well, we were gonna do it just for your show. Yeah. Really? Well, so yeah. so I mean, it's like such a weird situation right now. You know? What yeah. I mean, like, I, mean I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I could probably squeeze you guys if you guys are only getting back together for that one show. <laughs> I mean, had I known I, that. I, I hit up Nick after I saw that you suggested it. And I was like, you've been wanting to do this for a while. Because he's talked to me like the last couple of years. Like, hey, we should get together and do this and play a show. And I kept thinking, I don't know, man. Like that, like a few venues have closed down in Kansas City. And this, the local scene was kind of weird for a while. It was kind of like desolate. And, you know, we have a lot of friends that are all grown up now. They all have kids. And I threw a benefit show for a friend that passed away a couple of years ago. I actually did two in a row. And it was just like pulling teeth, getting people to come out and support and hang out. Right. And so I was just, I don't know if I really want to go through the trouble of getting together and just the amount of work that it would take. But I, it just seemed like 
you know, that might be a fun opportunity. And do you want to do this? And he's like, sure, why not? And so I got on a, a Zoom call with him and I, I hung out with him a couple of times the last uh, few years, but I hadn't talked to Gabe in a long time. So we got him on the phone and Gabe was a drummer, right? Yeah, he was a drummer. So, so just re- refresh, not that this is like an interview with you, but like refresh my memory <laughs> on the demise of game time. Cause you guys, I mean, when, at that point in my life, like I was really, I mean, I was very young then as you probably were, but like, that was a really formative year for me and like area of years for me. And like, yeah. I was a massive game time fan. Like, Oh, well, thanks man. Massive game. And you guys were going to sign to takeover. Is that correct? Yeah, we actually did sign a takeover. We were on takeover for probably three or four months. We were recording demos to go into the studio with Mike Green to do our first official record. Yeah. So, and so what event, what exactly happened? Something about Nick and becoming like a pastor or something? Yeah. So it, it you know, it's always more than one thing. It's like a, <laughs> like a conglomerate of things, but we went on tour and I think we probably went through Pittsburgh our last run because we were on tour with the prize fight and that was a really fun tour and we were doing really well it was like the first time we were actually coming out ahead money wise you know it's weird because kyle coomer the other kyle in the band yeah, he, he left yeah, yeah yeah so he left the band in 2003 like the end of 2003 or actually i guess it was the fall it was like our last tour with him and we got another friend to come in and basically fill in for him and he was an old friend of mine but he didn't really grow up in the same scene that we did. He liked MXPX because he kind of grew up in the church. So that was his exposure to punk music and pop punk music. But he didn't really have, he just didn't really love that style of music. He was listening to kind of like a, an eclectic range of music around that time. I remember he was listening to a lot of Coheed and Cambria, a lot of the Mars Volta, which is fine. I mean, those bands are, are fine in their own right. But when it came time to write music, it was sort of like a butting of heads. There wasn't much chemistry there. I think Nick kind of felt that, like he felt that there, that we were struggling and the music industry was just really weird around that time. I, I don't know if you remember like 2004, like everybody was wearing all black and everybody was listening to Mike M and Taking Back Sunday. And I think we were just kind of trying to find our place in it, mm-hmm. you know, trying to figure that out. I, you know, I was so young. I was 20 years old in 2004. So I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're about the same age. But yeah, I mean, we, we had probably close to, I think, seven or eight demos. And we were going to go into the studio with Mike Green. I think it would have just been nice to go in with a producer and have him help us flesh out some of our ideas. I we mean, were kind all, of struggling. The, all the demos, all the songs you had at that point were like, you know, I mean, like, I mean, who shares wins off the hizzle? I don't, I, uh, is it called Take This Girl? Is that the name yeah. of the song? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. like, it, it, I always imagine what those songs would have sounded like if they were, you know, like done prop. I don't want to say properly because I love those songs, but like done yeah. properly. Yeah, 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 for sure. Just with the producer in mind, you know, to kind of help us flesh out the song. We were still struggling on how to even write songs. You know, we were doing the illusion of safety, one for the kids, where it's just like an amalgamation of parts in a song, you know, we just needed somebody to help streamline us. Definitely. I mean, I, you know, I feel like you guys fell into the category of like Rufio over it, lobster records, you know, like staring back, but like, you were more poppy than that. But then you get to the pop punk scene and you guys were like too fast for that, you know, like at at times. But I mean, I remember... Like, I remember, weren't you guys on a Rufio tour? We played a bunch of shows with them. We never officially toured with them, though. Okay. 
Because I recall yeah. you guys get landing like a bunch of shows with that. But I mean, I, I was just like reminiscing before, before like, you know, last night about, you know, that whole time period. And there were so many bands up that were like sub commercial, like weren't, you know, the like broke, broke through even like in terms of label stuff that were so good, dude. Yeah. I, mean, so good. I think you just do the best you can. And, you know, hopefully you can persevere long enough to where somebody recognizes that. And I think we just didn't persevere long enough, you know. It just, just felt one so of those when you guys. But I remember like the other old members in, in that were in the Space Pimps. I just remember like when it happened and us being like, "What?" Like, yeah, they had so much momentum. Every every like you guys grinded too. Like at shows, if there were fifteen people, I remember seeing you guys in a tiny venue outside of Pittsburgh called uh, the Scarlet Theater in Glassport, Pennsylvania. Yeah, that, like. Dude, like there were maybe 30, 40 people, but like you made a point to talk to every person. And it, just, <laughs> it seemed like you guys like had the the songs, had the image, had the grind. And, and it was just very surprising when you guys broke up. I think all the bands in that scene were talking about when you guys broke up. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that because being in it, I think it felt a little bit different as I'm sure it always does when there's band stuff going on. There wasn't any, that's the thing. There wasn't any bad blood or anything. I just think Nick, I think he thought we were headed in a direction. He just didn't really want to go, you know, with the music thing too. Those songs that you mentioned, we had been playing those songs for, for almost a couple years at that point. Mm -hmm. So it was like, we, or, with who shares one specifically, we had that, we recorded that in 2001. So by the time we broke up, we had had that song for three years. We had played that song locally for three years. And I think we just really wanted to get some new material down. And that's when we really started beating our head against the wall. I'm sure I was overthinking it too. I was just really overthinking how to write songs in general and, and what was good. I was too in it, you know, like we were demoing, but this was before it was easy to demo on your phone or in the box or whatever. Laying down demos was kind of difficult and nothing really sounded good so it was really hard it was hard for me to imagine what it was gonna what the final product was gonna be what it was gonna sound like oh and, dude i mean that's like the best part of recording you have this idea like we didn't demo either back in the day i mean but like when you get yeah. the studio and you start like seeing the song come together you realize then but then it's too late at that right. point if the right. song sucks and it's not what you thought it was then like what do you do you just pay yeah exactly to record a song so yeah. And I, you know, I go back and I listen to some of those demos and I'm, and I'm thinking he probably would have just torn them apart. He would have kept little things here and there. He probably would have said, I, we need a different chorus here. Or we need a different line here, a different melody. Now that I'm so far removed from it and I'm looking back at it, back at it in hindsight, like I can kind of hear it with a producer's ear. Oh yeah. There's, there's something here, but we just need to tweak a few things and actually turn it into a listenable song. Not just like this, this conglomeration of parts it just, it just seems like why you guys should have just given it a whirl. I mean, man, yeah. like looking back, do you guys, do you think that does Nick have a different perspective on, like, you know, we, we could have, should have just seen what it would have gone like. I mean, Mike Green is the dude, even today, Mike Green yeah. is one of the dudes. Yeah. He's come a long way. It's funny too. Cause I, I literally still have the reel that he sent me, which is just a CD of a few of the things that he had done. And at that point he had just done, he did a few demos for over it. And he did that first matches record, the very first one. Shit, and that was all he had done. With like dog ear page and all that shit on it. Uh, the one with the face, like it's like cartoon yeah. face in the front of it. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that no. album's phenomenal. I mean, he's, yeah. he's worked with all time low. He's done set your goals. He's, I mean, it's like, 
Yeah. You and know? then literally a year later, you did the first Paramore record. <sighs> I mean, there's definitely part of me that thinks, you know, if we had just kept going and just listened to our instincts a little bit more, we probably would have been fine. Because pop punk kind of, it it goes through waves. It goes through seasons. I think it's we would have... It's added yeah. to the flow. I mean, even over the years, it's declined tremendously, I mean, exponentially. Yeah. And, you know, there was like a, a period of time where Caleb and I, we were trying to start a new band, but it was going to sound completely different. If you go back and listen to those demos, which I actually, I don't have them online anywhere, but it sounded more like kind of like Amberlin receiving ends of sirens type stuff. And then I wasn't in a band for two years. So it was a weird time period where I wasn't even playing music, really. And then I joined another band called The American Life. And that's where I really learned to write songs and just come up with ideas very quickly and on the fly. And we were demoing in the box. And Because I remember you, I remember that band, but what ended up happening with that band? With The American Life, we it was kind of around the same amount of time that Game Time had as far as being a band. It was kind of a similar story. A lot of momentum. We had a manager that was really working hard and getting us some publications and things. We recorded our first album ourselves. And then I sent a couple of the new demos that we had to Zach Odom and Kenneth Mount. And then we went... Were they in New York or Atlanta? They're in Atlanta. Yeah. And so Kenneth emailed me back. We like it. We'd love to record you. So we went down there and recorded an EP with them. Oh, fuck. Really? Yeah, in 2008 and 2009. We went to finish it in 2009. And it's five did, songs. Did it ever get released? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember the band name, but like, forgive me. I don't remember like the details. Yeah, no worries at all. Because I was like, yeah, such, I, was I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I know that I still talk with some of the people in Pittsburgh about you guys. Like my group of friends, like always loved you guys. And like, you know, I'm not like, I mean, I legitimately still listen to Game Time. Like, legitimately. <laughs> like, even now, like, my wife knows who Game Time is, even though she had no, obviously, no idea who it was. But it was just a big bummer. It was like one of those, like, I'd say five or six bands. And I remember very vividly when we won the, when the Space Pimps won the Pittsburgh Ernie Ball battle of the thing for Warp Tour, I went to every single city, like, on the webpage and listened to every band. And dude, there are like seven bands, eight bands from that batch that were phenomenal. Para, or not Paramore, but like Patent Pending was one of those bands. Monty's yeah. Fan Club, which ended up becoming Monty or I. Game Time, JV All-Stars. Do you remember that band? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I still talk to Nick occasionally. He from lives the- not too far from me. He's about three hours away from me in Omaha. Nebraska, right there in Nebraska. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was yeah. this deluge of band. There was this band that ended up signing MCA called Lucky Seven. That was yeah, I remember that, them. Like, that was in that realm of band. It was just like... It was a great time. And I was, I was, you know, I reminisce, I'm very nostalgic as you can even tell from my posters and stuff here, but the, um, yeah, it's I like a, that Rufio one in the back. That's I think great. you guys played shows on that tour. I thought, I, I, think, I think we did. I think we did actually. Yeah. Well, it's oh, we, we were, yeah, it, I think it was, that was right before we broke up. Yeah. We had a, a blast with Rufio. Those guys were great. Those guys actually like every time they would come through, they'd stay at my house. So I got, I became pretty close with them. Like Scott and all those dudes. Yeah, Scott, Clark, Mike, and John, and they had a couple of, there was a band from California called Amity that we used to play with a lot, and I'm pretty sure they were they were good friends with the the Rufio guys, and I think they came through one time, and they all stayed at my house. And Are you in Kansas City? I'm in Lawrence, Kansas right now. This is where I live, but Lawrence is about 45 minutes from Kansas City, so I still work in Kansas City. Oh, and what do you, what do, you do now? I'm actually a personal trainer. Thought so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do online coaching and then train people throughout the week. Wow. Yeah, I've got my own little space. 
that's far fetched from eating fast food every night on tour. I know, dude. Tell me about it. It's so funny because people that I knew in high school, you're a personal trainer now. Like, <laughs> were you this little uh, punk kid for a while? And it's like, yep, that was me. Do you miss? Do you miss like? I mean, the game time period of time. I mean, like, do you miss playing shows? Do you miss being part of the scene actively? You know, it feels. I feel far removed from it, honestly. I miss recording. I always really enjoyed recording and I still record every once in a while. Like I'll still come up with random song ideas here and there. And I bought a Pro Tools rig about six years ago. I taught myself how to record. Very I'll send you some stuff. I ended up recording probably 10 instrumental songs. I didn't put any vocals to it because vocals are really hard to record when you're on a budget. And I just didn't have any plugins and I just couldn't get it to sound exactly, exactly the way I wanted it to. So I just kind of abandoned it. Uh-huh. But I do miss being in, in the studio. I think beyond that, touring and trying to be a musician for monetary purposes, it would just have to look completely differently now, you know? Unfortunately, it does. It doesn't. It looks worse. Even yeah. Than, you know? Um, yeah. It, it's, it's weird because I've seen the industry kind of ebb and flow too, you know, as I'm, you know, you can attest to this. It's come full circle where DIY may be the best way to go right now. I mean, if you're a hustler, which we were game time, we hustled, you know, that was the thing that we, we really had that going for us, just that tenacity and that drive. And we wanted to be as self-sufficient as possible. I remember my last semester of high school, I was booking our first two tours. Remember book your own fucking life. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I used to book our tours. Wow. See, That's I, probably I, how I got in touch with you. <laughs> I did, I did, I did the same. I mean, I did everything and I do still do, you know, mostly everything, but I mean, it, that DIY spirit we got, I like, I got from that scene, but I felt like I loved to see like growing up during that time, like in the music, like you felt like you were, you were part of something that was going to be huge and it did become huge in some yeah. way. Um, but it also like for a period of time, I got real jaded. We got to get signed. You know, the other dudes in my band, particularly you, you, I mean, I think our bass player, old bass player, Brian was somebody that you became close-ish with, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. He got super, super like focused on that. And it really ruined our, our, our whole vibe, I think. And I think now looking back, like I wish we would have just totally DIY'd it the whole way. And that's what I do now. I started four chord music, the record label, the festival, yeah. we booked the tours, run the publishing through. I mean, it's just like a, it's a well-oiled machine. And like, I can see now how, what the areas of profitability are. And it is by no means, you know, paying my mortgage and doing shit like that. But like at the same token, we are and have been for almost a decade, a hundred, hundred percent sustainable, which I wish I would have seen the light at the end of the tunnel when I was younger. But I mean, sure. you know, everything happens for a reason. Well, and also back then, that was the goal. That was the one defining mission that it was like your North Star. If we get signed, everything's going to be taken care of for us. We're going to get a booking agent and then we're going to get on these on all these big tours. And then we're just going to climb that ladder and keep putting out records every couple of years and and then become the next Blink-182. That was the goal, right? So that's what other bands did that we idolized. I mean, Rufio did yeah. that. I mean, in Pittsburgh, there was a band called Punchline. That like every band in Pittsburgh followed their their lead. They did that, and they Absolutely. signed a few by Roman. You know, so it's yeah. it's, just, it's there's a lot a lot of because uh, like I'm a, I don't know if you know, but like I'm a college professor now too. Yeah, um, you mentioned that, and I was going to ask you about that. What do you teach? So I have a PhD in marketing. Oh, um, cool. 
analytics, growth hacking, SEO, like stuff like that is like in my roundhouse. But I would, you know, I, so many people take my classes because they know about four chord or the band or so, or so on and so forth. And they're always like, well, I'm ready for this. And, but like, it is, I, I wish there's a way to describe that, like how being in a band is just not for the faint of heart. It, that, that's putting it lightly. You yeah. know, there's so much up and down. It's like running a business, being creative and not pissing off people that you're in a van with 24 hours a day. I mean, it's just like not reality. It's not even sure. close to reality. Oh yeah, sort of an altered state. Definitely. That's how I felt on tour too, you know, like being away from home, you're sort of beyond the realm of regular society almost. Oh, definitely, dude. You, yeah. you, I mean, then you feel like shit when you come home and you're like, oh, like my friends are doing this and like, you know, they're doing that. And you're, you know, I have negative $150 in my bank account. I mean, it, <laughs> it, gets, it gets very exhausting, you know, but, but I mean, I don't know, man. Yeah. It's, I don't know what my life looks like without it. That's the, that's the way I've, I've been so consistent doing it since I've been 18. You've got the bug, right? And that's the thing. It's just part of being creative too. I'm sure being a professor of marketing and just learning a lot about marketing and like you said, SEO targeting and, and getting things to grow organically over time, that's got to help too. There's, there's probably a lot of crossover there. Was that one of the reasons you were attracted to marketing in the first place? Because you were already doing it with your band? So yeah. I mean, in large part, yeah. But I mean, dude, honestly, the only... Being in a band, the only thing when I was young that I want that, I mean, I wanted to do the only thing. Now I have many, many other aspirations. The only thing I wanted to do was be in a band. And the only way I could figure out to be a contributing member of society while continue to be in this economically, fiscally irresponsible entity of being in a band was to stay in school. It was like the safe thing to do. Like I was off six, five months a year. So we could tour for four months a year. You only were in class, you know, three, four days a week. I just stayed in school thinking that this isn't going to last much longer being in a band. And it just led to other interests in academia that really piqued my interest, which was obviously in the digital age. It's like, how do you, you know, you, we don't need to go to a, a, a concert and hang out, hand out physical flyers in order to get people to show up at our concert. To understand like that at a very basic level, but to look at the micro complexity of how that functions and how you actually yeah. do it is what, what did it. So it's definitely music. <laughs> Def- definitely being in a band for sure. Absolutely. That's really cool. Cause I mean, doing what I do now, that's a big part of what I do. I'm always marketing myself. I'm marketing literally every day, trying to utilize the internet market on social media and kind of spread yourself out there, use different platforms and things like that. Tell me a little bit about the label. You've released a couple things, right? There was one band. What's the band? Fortune Co. You released a record last year. It's Fortune Co. Yeah. Fortune so, code. Yeah. Yeah. So for, so I started for, again, I was just sick. We can go in, into this eventually if you want, but like we have had every close call with every label you can think of, dude, it would have broken most bands. I have some fucking obscene stories about, you know, sitting in the offices of hopeless or being on work tour and Lou posing from hopeless coming and checking us out. And, Oh, you know, you're going to get a deal memo and my, like we have had everything possible and I'm just fucking fed up with it all. Like, I, I don't, yeah. don't want to even think in that realm anymore. And, and in 2017, I was like, I'm not even going to shop. This idea of shopping is just so archaic. You know, yeah. like, there's, it doesn't, you know, there's only two ways bands make it. They either make it because you've gotten the attention of the label or the label, in a sense, found you, which is very unlikely uh, to happen. I call it the magical hand. I was sick of thinking that the magical hand was going to come pick us up. So 
like incorporated made for core music obviously is an out offshoot of the of the festival which gives some leverage for me because yeah. you know i mean i know every single booking agent on planet earth now by first name they know me by first name which is a huge i think asset to offer bands to be able to shop a band to an agent is way more important than shopping them to a label i mean just without equivocation it's it's way yeah. more important so i started in 2017 released eternal boys first album when we changed the band name praise jesus thank god we you know we did that that was a long time coming but i released ours and then i signed this kind of i don't want to say experiment band but not really my thing band they were called a they're called a summer high um it's a very long convoluted story but their manager was the old manager for you ready for this michael jackson and okay. michael jackson he was michael jackson's manager and he his great nephew was in this band who's from pittsburgh so i met them they they knew the festival and the band and they were releasing this album they like a they're like a a boy band 5 seconds of summer play their own instruments type thing and i thought yeah it'd be a great experience so i signed them and it was a great experience i learned a lot in many ways it was a clusterfuck but um <laughs> sold a lot of records they sold a lot of records they had a huge online fund toured with plain yts toured with all time low toured with a bunch of um people i think i helped um so that was a one album thing and i got out of it and then last year i signed my favorite they're my favorite band like in the in the underground they're like my game time of 2020 <laughs> in all honesty uh, they were a band called harbor for years it from canada they're from like uh the toronto area then they were going to go through a brand shift they were going to break up i said you know let me just try to release the album under the new name you know see how it goes it went pretty well i mean it's tough doing a brand change for anything but so i released their album i'm going to release their next album too uh, cool. and then you know it's just it's just weird it's like it's very hard to be profitable as a label it really is i mean you know yeah. to get it's a labor of love it's a what it's a labor of love It is. I mean it's 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 weird though because it was the first time I'd ever released anything that wasn't my own. So it's kind of weird. It's like this opportunity comes, how do you how do you manage do you give it to Eternal Boy? Do you give it to somebody else? You know, so it's it's sure. very weird, but but it's fun. It's fun. I'm not trying to be hopeless records or fearless records. I I want to be an incubator. That's all I want to do. I want to incubate it and see if it can develop and then have them go on. Every deal yeah. is 50-50. I pay for 100% of everything and we split everything 50-50. There's no fine print, there's no bullshit and and that's just the way you have to run it I think today. So do you do one album contracts? One all one album and then uh the options on the band, not even okay. for me. Um now if they upstream after that, there's some specificity like, you know, for back catalog stuff and and stuff for like the larger label to end up purchasing. But sure. really the money's to be made in publishing. to getting songs on television and on sporting events i had this we had eternal boy had this amazing opportunity 2 years ago with monday night football the pay is ridiculous for this shit i never thought in a million years that you'd get paychecks of i mean a lot of money you know for yeah. for using your song for 30 seconds but we got this cool deal with monday night football they used it a lot or only the instrumental of it and then that kind of led to some other stuff which put me uh in contact with like the biggest music publishing uh, house in the entire United States that now licenses all of four chord music. So that leverages oh, cool. for me now. You know, for for to get bands, not to lure bands, but like cuz I really only work with bros at this point. Like I'm not seeking after like new bands. Summer High was that, but now it's mostly just kind of like homies that I'm trying to work with. 
I mean, it's cool. It's it, it's it's like ninety percent like shit that you that, that is so annoying and tedious, and like ten percent of it, you're like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's like it's like yeah. being in a band. It's just like being in a band. Of course, yeah. Do you have to think about it a little bit differently from a label perspective versus a band perspective, or is it like being a member of the band? Great question, and that's my biggest problem. I don't. I act just like I'm in the band. You know, I mean, it's it's. I think there's pros to that a lot. Like when you get to a bigger label, I think that the con is that you it feels like they aren't part of the band. But, you know, the pro would be for them to act as if they were more like the band. I'm the complete yeah. reciprocal uh, relationship at this level. I just, I, I can't look at it from a, I'm not invested emotionally in this project perspective at times. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's, I've never had an issue. I had many issues with the summer high. And I, I mean, I don't care if they see this. We've had, I had, I mean, like meltdowns in studios with like big producers. <laughs> uh, I mean, like. It, 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 it was a, a good learning experience, but I never want to fucking touch it with a hundred foot radius ever again in my life. That's fair. Yeah. I'm sure you've, you've come into contact with certain scenarios where you have to set up boundaries, personal boundaries, because if it is going to be a labor of love and you're just doing it for purely the creation aspect of it, you know, because that's kind of what it is. We're creating things. We're putting things out into the ether. We're turning something that was nothing into something if you're going to put that much time and effort into it, you have to really guard yourself, your time and your energy because you've got so many other things going on. I'm sure. I mean, being a professor, that probably takes up a big majority of your time. Right. So yeah, you got to really love what you're doing on the other end of it. Think about your business. I mean, think about, I mean, think about, you know, I mean, I, I know, you know, when I've done like consulting work and stuff like that, small businesses like yours that you're running, you know, are, I mean, the parallels to being in a band are probably uncanny. Um, but, but I mean, I think you can look at it from more of an entrepreneurial perspective, probably uh, now, Absolutely. particularly at your age. But I mean, even more, you know, that you've been through the band thing. I mean, it's like in one sense, it's art. In one sense, it's business. In one sense, it's paying your bills. So it's like, you know, where do you balance all of that? And see, being a professor has been made it very easy for me to do that. I mean, I mean, being a professor is... I always say like, like I'm not like a, like a book smart person. I, I, I don't know how I ever got a PhD when I look back. Like I don't, I don't fully comprehend how this will happen. Uh, but it allows me to do everything that, that I, yeah. I mean, like I literally, I teach three days a week. I do research one day a week and I'm off from May until September, you know I mean? Yeah. It, and you make obviously, you know, really good money. I mean, doing it, it's, it's, I wish I could have seen this when I was 18 and been like, all right, cool. Well, like I can do both successfully to some degree, you know? Um, Absolutely. But that's the thing. I think you, you just hit it on the head right there. The fact that I can look at this as more of an entrepreneur now, but there's so many parallels to me being an entrepreneur now and I'm an independent contractor. So even more so because it's on me to get my clients and things like that. I set my own schedule, my own rate and all that, but that's essentially what I was doing in the band too. I was essentially an entrepreneur. I just didn't know it. There was that drive then. And I have that drive now. And I recognize that drive in you back then. And I, I mean, you're kind of speaking my language right now. Like I can definitely hear the drive in you now, but you're, you have the element of experience now to know I can actually have my hand in several different categories and, and just things in my life that I can approach in different ways, but they're all, there's just so many parallels to kind of what you're doing. 
it's like you said, the creativity aspect to being a professor, still taking pride in learning and kind of tearing up and leveling up in your craft there. And then that I'm sure there's tons of spillover in the band, the festival and the label. Oh, definitely. You should come, you should, you should speak to one of my entrepreneurship classes. I think that'd be, I think they would appreciate. Oh, dude, I love it. I think you should for real. I I think that the the problem, like, and I don't want to get too much into academia. I know this isn't really about that, but like the problem with academia is that it is completely detached from reality. It's completely, you write a paper that 15 people read who all have four PhDs and it never, ever, ever gets any pulse or has a pulse in reality. So the cool thing about marketing, and there are many people in marketing that have no sense of what's happening in reality, is that all the professors that I work with, they have never worked. They have never worked a day in marketing. They've never put a, a, ran a Google AdWords YouTube campaign. They've never done growth hacking and understand virality. They just study it from this like hyper specific view. And, And with academia and particularly the classes I teach and the research I do, it is all rooted in reality. And it is rooted in reality because I've been in a band and I slept on floors in Japan and Europe and Canada and Kansas City. I mean, like, I mean, we've, we've done things that like enable us to understand the, the working man or woman's perspective. Uh, yeah. So the spillover for that is what I appreciate most is that I'm a blue collar academic. I'm not a white collar esoteric academic that reads Thoreau because it's fun. You know? <laughs> it's, it's just not, that just doesn't work for me. So, but I, I mean, with you in particular, you know, I think that, that, I mean, do you use specific things that you remember from being in a band? I mean, like, I mean, it, of course, in a 2020 revamped way. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned it earlier. You don't necessarily have to go to the venues to hand out flyers after the show. Right. That was something that Game Time did. And I really think that was one of the reasons we were just so well known in the Kansas City area. We would play shows and people would actually come out. And it was because... I think we were willing to go to the starting line was playing. We'd probably go to the show, but afterwards we'd hand out a thousand flyers and we wouldn't leave until every single person had come in contact with that flyer. And I remember watching all these people, they'd look at it and then they just immediately trash it. And I, it never really bothered me that much because I always knew, Oh, top of mind, there's something that's going to latch on to that name. And, you know, subconsciously, they're going to remember that. And then all of a sudden, they're going to stumble their way into a local show and they're going to recognize us. That's very that's, interesting. That's what happened. That's very interesting. Not to interrupt you, but that's so like something that I'm interested in is neuromarketing. And, and you know, the process that the way people get information is equally as important as the information that they get. So if you are driving down the street and you look at a billboard and you get in a car crash, Right. That image of that billboard is going to be now, of course, that's an extreme example, but most people don't get exposed to things when they're waiting in line going to a concert. So the fact that you gave that, whether they use it for toilet paper or they put it in a frame, it's negligible. Right. Right. That's what and that's where that grassroots grind of like, you know, guerrilla marketing grind is important. Yeah, absolutely. And and the way it carries over now is I'm posting fitness tips on social media every day or every weekday or whatever it is. And it's not necessarily because I want to get 150 likes, very little engagement, some lots of engagement, depending on what type of post it is. That's really not the point. It's just so that I can sort of bake it into the subconscious of my following that he's the fitness guy. If I I ever have any questions or I'm ever deciding I want to try to get in 
good shape or something or lose a little bit of weight, he's the person I need to talk to because subconsciously I've already built that rapport and that authority in their mind. And I really just have to show up to bat. I don't have to hit every single ball out of the park. I just need to show up. God, if only you could have told 18 year old you that what you just said, you don't, you absolutely don't need to hit a home run every time. Sometimes yeah. hitting the ground ball and tripping over first base and getting tagged out, you will learn more than just getting a, a straight base hit. And I, I've looked, yeah. at, I've looked at your uh, social media and it's definitely that reinforcement of the brand. And I think that that's the most important part of marketing in 2020 and beyond is the brand. It's about what the yeah. brand represents, which is why, I mean, I'm, I dealt with an issue this year with the festival. There was a band called Sleep On It that had these allegations against them that were, some would argue are not as severe and some would argue are incredibly severe. And even last year, I don't know if you heard, did you hear what happened to the festival last year? No, the one with the offspring? Dude, you ready for this? It is, or everything's ready to roll. I mean, it, it was, I, the last year was like the biggest step. I mean, like I went from like preschool to, to, <laughs> to like a freshman in college for that. I mean, like it, it was so stressful. Everything gets finally set up. We're there over and I mean, every, everything was done. I mean, there's nobody else. Me, Four Core Music Festival is only me. So everything is get set up. VIP doors are about to open. I get a phone call from the Offspring's agent saying the Offspring is canceling because uh, Dexter, the lead singer, uh, hurt his back the night before. Oh, no. 4,000 plus tickets. Five minutes before doors. Five wow. minutes before doors. Five um, minutes before doors? Five minutes before doors. So the Offspring was flying in from Philadelphia. Their crew... Their gear, their backdrop, everybody was already there. They had no idea. Wow. None of their crew knew. Nobody knew. Gosh. Their agent calls me. And I'm, you know, that's probably the <laughs> biggest crisis management situation I've ever dealt with. It ended up being okay, believe it or not. And that's a whole other story. But there's always like that brand image of what Four Core Music Festival was. That's the only thing I was concerned about. I wasn't concerned about the money made. I wasn't concerned about anything else at that point because that was a huge first step. Just like with your business, you know, you're concerned yeah. about reinforcement that you are this, you are that. And right. um, the brand in 2020 is going to be the demise or the, the rise of, of, a, of a company. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I'm a big fan of, I've been listening to this guy, Naval Ravikant lately, and he's not specifically a marketer, but he's got a lot of, he's kind of like a, a tech guy, Silicon Valley type, mm -hmm. but he's, he's got a really prolific Twitter account, but he's always got these little gems and he always talks about personal branding and how important, how crucial it's going to be because there's only categories of one for each person, right? Ooh. So you want to do what you do and you want to do it the best that you can do it because you're the only person in the world that can do it. And I like that. And that's very similar to being in a band too. You want to be a category of one. You don't necessarily, you want to exude who you are as people. There's only one Dave Grohl. You know, he plays rock music and there's tons of rock bands, but there's only one Dave Grohl, just like there's only one Rishi, right? I mean, you're, you're a fairly larger than life person. You always reminded me of Nick and I've kind of followed you since then. I mean, you remember Nick. Nick is, of course, he's definitely a category of one type person. <laughs> I always thought that he, he always reminded me of like a Broadway star. Yeah. Like ever since I knew I met him. Well, he looks like a guy that was in the movie Rent. I don't oh, know yeah. if you remember that movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Dude, I had no idea about The Offspring last year. It's funny, though, because I remember I trained in my own space, but I trained there with my best friend. He trains in the morning. I train in the midday to evenings. So we kind of have this, this nice situation now with COVID where there's not a ton of overlap. But I remember last year, 
dude, check this out. And I showed him the lineup because Amberlin played too. And I'm a huge Amberlin fan. I'm actually wearing an Amberlin shirt right now. <laughs> that may have been one of the first shows back that they were doing. And I was just really excited for you because I could tell the festival was just growing almost exponentially. And look at this lineup, man. Isn't this rad? And my buddy, Sean, he was the singer of the American Life. Oh, so cool. he's he's a fan of all the bands and he definitely grew up in the same scene that we did. He was, man, we should go to that. You are well, you are more than welcome anytime you get the roy- the the red carpet laid out. <laughs> over. Um, I appreciate it, man. I do. Yeah. Amber so, Amberlynn, that was that was a tough sell. That was they were had no intentions of getting back together at that point. Wow. And then so and I they, can thank you for that then, right? Well, I don't know if I I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not on the inner circle for Amberlynn, but I mean they I know that it was a, um, I saw they were teasing on their social media and I was like, I'll take a shot at it. And again, it's like with the festival, and I know we're going all over the place. And I don't know how good or bad this is for your, for your podcast. I, I, I love it, man. This is perfect. Okay. The, the, the thing is, is that like, it's, I strike out a hundred times before I get, you know, the band, the bands that I want. And it's, believe me, man, you are a nobody to these agents. They treat you like you're a second class citizen. Most of them. Treat you like yeah. it, no matter how much money, even though think about this for an example. And I, I give this example in my class all the time for brand management. If you went to McDonald's and you paid for a Big Mac, imagine if they looked at you and said, fuck off. You didn't pay enough <laughs> for that Big Mac. That is what this is like. You are saying yeah. here is a gross amount of money, a disgusting amount of money. Please play my show. And then they're like, okay, but we need this. We need that. We need that. You need to pay for travel. They need hotels. They need, a, you know, their ride or their hospitality. They need separate cars picking i mean if i'm one day i'm going to start a podcast eventually and talk about the riders of all these bands <laughs> I, I know that there's like rumors about like mariah carey only wants blue m&ms or something dude it is a sin it is a fucking sin what what gets wasted the amount of income that just you just throw away for some of this stuff it is really 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 you can ask my wife and my best friends thank god my best friend in the world is my lawyer I've known him since I've been in, we've been in elementary school. He became a lawyer. And he, he does all of my legal work for free. Nice. Or, or it's just like, I wish I could like, like have like a checklist of all the shit that you have to go through to do. I mean, you, even in a band from band to label to the festival, but the festival is like a, on steroids in terms of the, um, yeah, I believe you in terms of just all of the moving parts. It's just unexplicable. I teach an event management class. And I see, I can't even, there's so much in my, in here that I can't even articulate to them <laughs> that, that I can't even, you know, I can't even get out. Yeah. I'm sure there's definitely some nightmarish scenarios when it comes to stuff like that and just organizing. And, and I'm sure you have to delegate more and more each year. You have to have more and more people, more hands to help you with the whole thing. I would definitely listen to that podcast about all the ridiculous <laughs> writers of bands. It's, I mean, God, I want to name names so bad right now. But I <laughs> um, yeah, it's, 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 oh God. Yeah, I'll, you know what? Outside of the podcast, I'll take a screenshot of even just a tiny bit of it. And I'll, and I'll, actually, I'm not allowed to do that. I'm trying to wink. I'm not allowed <laughs> to do that. And I won't do that. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, man. I don't know. Everything I do in my life is like being in a band though. It's, it's just unbelievable. Like as a professor, I treat it like being in a band, you know? Yeah. It's just, it's just unbelievable the amount I've learned. I could have never gone to school a day in my life. And I probably, in my opinion, other than being a professor, would be in the same situation. I just learned yeah. so much from being in a band. The good and Absolutely. a lot, mostly bad. Mostly bad. Yeah. It's just a lot of trial and error. You know, you learn what works and what doesn't work. And you definitely learn to work, especially in this country. 
there's still so much opportunity in this country, but you really have to just go for it. You have to put yourself out there. You have to believe in yourself and you have to believe in what you're doing and you have to really love what you're doing to do it day after day after day. I mean, you mentioned the word tedious and there's so much tediousness when it comes to promoting yourself and promoting your work and just being top of mind for, for whatever it is you happen to be doing. I don't know if you, you're familiar. I'm sure you are. You're familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V. Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) I remember this is probably like five years ago now when I first heard of him and started seeing his videos everywhere. I remember he was touting that if you weren't selling baseball cards or walking to your neighbor's house and selling them their own flowers, then you're not a true entrepreneur. (laughs) And I remember hearing that and just being really, really, it was like an internal defensiveness just welled over me because I was thinking, maybe I'm not a born entrepreneur, but I'm going to be an entrepreneur. You know, this is like when I, when I first started building my business and everything, but then maybe some time got away from that point And I thought, no, actually I, I was, that's what the band was. The fact that I was going to Kinko's at 11 o'clock at night, so I could run over to the Beaumont club to hand out 2000 flyers. That was the entrepreneurial drive. And that was the thing that catapulted me to, to where I am now. And it's it's funny because there was a point in my late 20s where I kind of started working, for lack of a better word, corporate job. And I hated it, you know, because you're working for somebody else and you're in that wheelhouse and you're not necessarily in charge of your own destiny. You can't work harder so that you can reap more reward. And, oh and that's what being in a band is. You have to be willing to work hard enough to where you can actually continue doing it. And you have to love it so much because the success isn't guaranteed. You could work for years in a band and then the band could break up. And so while you're doing it, you have to really, really just love the tedious nature and the laborious stuff that you do day to day. Oh yeah. You gotta, you gotta love the grind. I mean, you gotta love the grind. I mean, yeah. I mean you said so many good things in that. I don't even, I don't even know where to begin. You, I mean, <laughs> That's, I mean, I hate Gary Vaynerchuk in all honesty. I think that he's an arrogant pontificating prick that makes it seem like, you know, I, I do show videos of him in my, one video in my class. I do think at the heart of what he's saying is very, very solid. It's just the surface, his surface appearance to me is just obnoxious. Uh, And it's that everybody starts at the same point. They don't. And I think that that is, is an incredibly important I'm, I'm a white privileged guy in, in Western Pennsylvania. You know what I mean? Like I grew up with no, no worries for me. I mean, when I guess I got older being in a band, I started worrying, is this going to work? How can I pay my bills? But, you know, growing up in high school and stuff, like my parents were like, yo, you want to go to college? We'll help you. You know, if you want. So we, we can't, we have to kind of move away from this perspective that like everybody gets the same opportunity. I think that that's not entirely true, though I do hundred percent agree with you that the opportunity is there. Every single time I see a new idea come out, I always think there's no way anybody can push the boundary a little more with this idea. And truth be told, a year later, that idea is brought to another level or another level. So I think that there's incredible opportunity for anybody that has a passion. The problem is, is that in a band or, or, or in a, you know, in a music festival, the economic balance for being an entrepreneur, like people hear the term entrepreneur, right? you know, teach an entrepreneurship part in a class. And I, I, you know, students, their initial perspective on what entrepreneurship is, they think everybody that's an entrepreneur is rich, you know, but being right. an entrepreneur is not about, it's really not about being rich. The best entrepreneurs love the idea, love the process and love creating something from nothing. And that is what I truly love. Honest to God, I can say 
I would, I would give in every penny that I've ever made if I knew that the satisfactoriness that I have of being able to see something that was nothing and then see it built. I, I just cannot describe the feeling that I get whenever I see that. And I didn't realize yeah. that until, you know, probably in the last eight years. Yeah, it's life-giving, right? And I mean, that's why we, we started bands in the first place. Because you're literally taking something in the ether, you know, just an idea, something that's in your head, just a thought, and then watching it come to fruition. That's a thrilling feeling. That's one of the reasons I started the podcast, because I thought, man, I like talking about this stuff with a lot of different people already. I may as well record some of it. And I, I really enjoy listening to it, too. I don't know if you've been listening to a lot of the podcasts about our scene and the style of music that we grew up loving and listening to. It's really fun to hear these different perspectives on it in different parts of the world and different parts of the country and just listening to the parallels there as well, you know, because everything you're saying, I, I've heard another band member mention, and it's always interesting listening to the, the creative process and everything. And speaking of which, you got a new record coming out, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, <laughs> yes, we do. I, I do want to go back to talking about what you talked about in a second, but yes, we have a uh, Eternal Boy has a new album produced by Chris Badami. He's done The Starting Line, Early November, every band you know I've ever loved. It was mastered by Ted Jensen. Awesome. Uh, with me. He's done Blink and the Foo Fighters, Nirvana. I mean, it's just, it's a long process. And like we finished it and we, we had like the whole unveiling of the whole album and then COVID hit. So we've been like mulling over, do we release it? Cause like a band like us, if we don't tour on the album, I mean, it's, it's, and again, touring looks way different than it did in 2003 and 2004, but you still need to do it. So it, this is a real big challenge for me that I'm accepting with open arms. But I mean, you know, our last album, Aquaface, for, for the level that we're at, it went stratosphere as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I, we, you can kind of see we got a Billboard record. We chart on five of the Billboard album or Billboard charts. Like, I mean, I can't even like I mean, that I felt like I was in the movie That Thing You Do, you know, like watching like opening up the Billboard magazine to see it. I mean, like if we don't at least do that, I'm going to feel like we failed. You know, but we can't, we can't tour on it. So how do you, you know, how do you supplement yeah. that in a way? So what we're doing and we're going to, we're announcing it like in the next couple of weeks or whatever, but every song is going to be a single. So the release cycle is not going to be three months. It's going to be six months. Um, so we'll release a song like every three, four weeks. I have like a piece of content for every one of those. We have a big plan for it, but I think it's, I think the album's really good. I mean, again, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. I never will try to reinvent the wheel musically. People that like us are going to love it. And people that didn't like us are going to give it a chance. Uh, there's our heaviest shit on it. There's our, our lightest stuff on it. There's our poppiest stuff on it. So we worked really hard on it. And again, like the band now is so different from when you knew us. And like the band prior to, to the other two guys that became Eternal Boy. It's just such a different dynamic. And it's just such a different life lived experience being with different types of people. I feel like I'm talking about the women I've slept with, uh, <laughs> but it's just like a different world, you know, seeing and being with people that, that really give a shit about it. And I'm really excited about it. I don't know. It comes out on, on uh, April 30th via four chord music, which sounds more official. This is everything in, in this office that I, I do everything in the merch is set up. Every, everything gets sent from here. I do a mail center here. So I'm really excited about it. I mean, you never know. And every time I do this, as I get older, I'm like, is this going to be the last one I get to do? I wish I would have thought that when I was 18. Is this going to be the last show I'm going to play with my two best friends in my, you know, in the original lineup? You know, is this going to be the last time we play this venue? Because it's going to close down after COVID. 
I just really try to have that mentality about stuff. And if this is the last album or art that I release, man, uh, good riddance. Because it is, I think it is phenomenally done. We took the time to do it and I hope people like it. I can't wait to listen to it. I listened to the single last night and I listened to it when you first released it as well. It's really good. Thank the you. recording sounds great. Did you work with Chris on a previous album too? Yeah, we worked with Chris for a while now. We, um, again, man, I could go through so many stories. We released an album called Stuck Here Forever under the Space Pimps. And in that album, we were talking, with doing the album, we were getting ready to roll with it with Mark Tormino. Um, oh, wow. We had the deal memo in place. We were ready to roll. And Mark Tormino's agent at the time was the same agent that Chris Badami has. And he was like, even at that age, like I was like, in two, this is 2008. I was like, you know, trying to nickel and dime and negotiate it. And they were like, oh, well, why don't you give Chris Badami a try? And I was like, fuck no, dude. Uh, we're going with Mark <laughs> Trombino. And we ended up, I talked with Chris and like, Chris is just like, dude, he's like the band's producer. He's like, he's a member of the band when you're there. You get the full attention. He just, he, he's just like so smart too. He's just like, he thinks about, I'm not saying other producers don't and Trombino doesn't. But for us, I don't know if we're ever going to go with anybody else but Chris. I mean, he's just, it's like the Jerry Finn of Blink for us. Yeah. So we did work with him for Second Forever. And then ultimately the Space Pimp's last album, quote unquote, was called Eternal Boy. And that was, he did that one. And then he did this one too. Excellent. Cool. So the self-titled Eternal Boy, he did that record as well? He did. Yeah. And that's what was, the, again, part of that branding and transition from the Space Pimp's. There's a paper trail, obviously, to Eternal Boy being a Space Pimp's album. So that's yeah. kind of what we thought was a smart move. But he did do that album too. I think that... Uh, Every album he's done, it sounds a little different. I like one's productions more than others, but I'm all, all of them, I, I just, I think, you know, they're phenomenal. I mean, he just did a great job. You know, he did a yeah. great job. He made it sound way better yeah. than we really do. Yeah, it sounds great. Is he in Pittsburgh or where is he from? Where's he he's based in, out of? He's in New York City or Northern New Jersey. Northern New Jersey. Northern New Jersey. Okay. Is that his full-time gig is recording? And oh, producing? yeah. Oh, That's yeah. awesome. He, he started it, I think that he did some, I mean, like bands, you know, it's real funny. Like I can't talk to some people about bands back in the day. Cause like there was a subculture of bands, like I mentioned before, that there was, I mean, exponentially stronger in the early 2000s than it is. It's not, it's not even in the same planet as it, as it was then. And like, he's done, he did like um, Midtown's first album. He's done um, Roses Are Red. He's done a band that was on Rushmore Records, which is like, drive through He was like the go-to for drive through for a long time. Yeah. He did Alistair stuff, A Day at the Fair, Houston Calls. He did a lot of that or that stuff that kind of, you know, I, I feel like I grew up with. Yeah. But he's been doing it since then. Uh, he had built his own studio in northern New Jersey. It's a barn that's, that's attached to his house. I mean, I don't know how in tune you are with recording gear, but, you know, he's got a Neve console. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. That's great. I mean, he's, he's, he's got the setup. I mean, he's a competitive with any producer out there in my opinion absolutely that's awesome i remember his name i remember he was attached to a lot of the drive-through records rushmore stuff i always dug his recordings did he do last stop suburbia he did he did i think half of that record okay and yeah and that record still sounds great i still revisit that one quite a bit it's a lot of fun do you, do you still listen to the music like do you still listen to the music that of early 2000s pop punk like is it still like a oh yeah record? you know i think with me, if you follow me on Spotify, I literally have my playlists dedicated to the year, categorized by the year of all the records I was listening to. And I still revisit all those old records over the last 20, 25 years. It's interesting because I've actually been revisiting a lot of skate punk, listening to a lot of fat records releases and epitaph. 
because that's kind of where we started. That's what I was listening to in high school and, and beyond and revisiting some of those records, like No Use for a Name and Propagandi, No Effects. Holy and, but I, you know, I still listen to all the drive through bands, you know, like we still, we still reminisce the early 2000s. Rufio, Yellow Card, all the drive-through bands were, I liked them all. I was a fan of all those bands. So yeah, I still revisit them. I like a lot of the newer bands too. A lot of the newer bands are, are decent. I don't know if as connected to it as I was back then, but I still will check out bands like Neck Deep and The Story So Far and State Champs and all that. I can tell they're, they're carrying on what was happening in those early 2000s and even a band like yourself, anytime I listen to your records, it's always just very fun, but it's still, it still feels fresh and new. Like the recording still feels modern and updated. If I write songs, it's still in the same vein. I'm not writing like indie music right now or anything with my spare time. The other day I was literally listening to Green Day's Nimrod. Just on the fly, I'm going to write four songs that are very similar to Nimrod. <laughs> and I was just literally humming melodies, three power chords into my phone just for fun. That's if I awesome. ever decide I want to set up my Pro Tools rig again and, and start finalizing songs. I think, I think um, you know, I, I was always thinking about, as part of Four Core Music, the label, releasing a legit documentary. I saw, I, I'm sure you might have seen, there's this awesome documentary on the hardcore scene called American Hardcore. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I grew up, to, I mean, I... It's so hard to say, like, for me, I grew up on, um, on the same fat records, you know, Pulley, like, like, you know, Tony Hawk, Pro Skater soundtracks, uh, yeah. MTV snowboarding soundtracks. And Blink was obviously touring with, with the Pennywises and, the, and those bands. So, yeah, and I grew akin to the Blink side of it, which brought me more to the drive through Records world. And drive through Records to me is the pinnacle of pop punk. That world was, was it. 2002 drive through Records stage to 2004. I mean, that was the heyday of pop punk. But I love, I mean, I absolutely love skate punk. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I, again, you know, Pulley is one of my favorite bands of all time. Face to Face is one of my absolute favorite bands of all time. Um, But for for Game Time, it's like Game Time straddled that perfectly. You guys were like almost like you, you could, you would be accepted with the Fat Records world. You'd be accepted (laughs) with the drive through world, but you also would be accepted with, again, I keep bringing up Broadway for some reason, but like the harmonies, the melodies were almost like, so poppy that it was Broadway-esque to me, um, which had this massive, well, thanks, why when you guys broke up, I was like, dude, that was the band. All my friends, we always said Game Time was that band that was going to, <laughs> I know it sounds weird and it's weird for me, like, dude, we haven't spoken in years, but like, I wish I could show you on my other, com- my, my four core computer here, dude. If you go to Game Time on my iTunes, dude, Off the Hizzle ha- has been played 844 times since I got iTunes. You know, I mean, (laughs) Take This Girl has been 440 times running away. I mean, like, dude, like these songs are still a staple. And for me, at least, I mean, for what it's worth. And going back to this documentary idea, I just remember like American Hardcore, they would interview like Bad Brains and and Minor Threat and and all these bands. And like the way that that scene worked in the 1980s was the exact way that scene that pop punk worked in early 2000s. Like there was the, the mainstream bands, which gave birth to all the other bands and there was drive through which was like the the cool like the cool brother or sister that you had uh that didn't go through to the mainstream but then it was like i remember like if i was booking a tour in 2005 and i I was going to kansas city like i would have hit you up like if you were going to poughkeepsie new york you were hitting up the band juniper or or matchbook romance like if you were going to long island you're hitting up patent pending if you're going to southern california you're you know you're hitting up nothing to lose if you're 
going to Denver, you're hitting up head injury. Like there was, there was this yeah. sense of like of a network that was created on the subconscious and sub level that was incredibly special. And you could show absolutely. up on any day of the week, man, and there would be 50 people at a show. Yeah, and it, it just doesn't happen today, Kyle. It doesn't happen like that. I'm not surprised that it doesn't happen that way. And I'm, I'm thankful for that time. I'm grateful for that time. Just being able to network. I mean, you still, I'm sure, have to network a ton when it comes to the festival. You've got to have like soft openings with people so that you can approach them and ask them certain things. And, and you're right. It was kind of a cool thing that was sort of developing in that early 2000s because the only way people could tour without a booking agent was because of that network. I remember we used to go, we used to go play with the JB All-Stars in Omaha and it was the same deal. We'd play at Knickerbockers or the Ranch Bowl. Ranch and Bowl. There were, yeah, there'd be 50 people there. Dude, that would go to South Dakota. That we'd fucking like, venue. The Ranch Bowl? Oh yeah, dude. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, did we play with Fall Out Boy there? Dude, fuck. Oh my God. So did you play with them on the Punchline tour? No, it was one of their very first tours. It was the winter of 2003. And I remember there was a big snowstorm that night. And we, it was us, the JV All-Stars, and Fall Out Boy. And dude, there was probably 100, 100 kids there. We, we play, dude, this is, oh God, we, we, we need to like, we need to categorize our stories and talk. We play, one of the first shows that Space Team's ever played was in 2003. Punchline, we, I, we had known Punchline. We all looked up to Punchline. Punchline Fall Out Boy gets signed to Fueled by Ramen a month prior. Punchline brings Fall Out Boy with them because Punchline had a big touring history uh, on their yeah. own. Fall Out Boy had not. And it was us, Punchline, and Fall Out Boy at the Butler VFW. It was an hour north of Pittsburgh. That was the first show Fall Out Boy ever played signed to Fueled by Ramen. Andy Hurley wow. breaks his snare drum, had to use our snare drum. Patrick Stump was, was selling merch. And I remember sitting at the merch table next to him and him being like, dude, I have no fucking idea what I'm doing here. <laughs> and I remember, like he said it jokingly, dude, those days, it's just like, I just can't even wrap my head. Like nowadays we have those bands. They're very hard to come by. Like the, you know, the patent pennings of Long Island, keep flying for Eastern PA. There's a band called Goalkeeper from Philly. We go to, you know, in Chicago, it was a band called Belmont before they got signed. And now they're on, you know, some bigger label in DC. It's the Great Heights band, you know, in Buffalo, New York, it's Kill the Clock. Like we have those bands now, but they just aren't, you know. It's just not, it wasn't what it was, man. And I am, I get frustrated when I think about it what, it, what it was like, but then I stop myself and be like, dude, there is no other time I would have wanted to grow up. There's oh, no yeah. other time. Sure. Absolutely. It would have been nice to just have you call us around that 2004 mark. Like, Hey, just go in and record the damn album. That, that might be cool. Like I see how it goes. I was really <laughs> bummed when I heard that. And I can't remember. I think so. You think maybe you messaged me on AI, AOL or AIM or something to tell me. And I just, I even remember, dude, I know this is so bizarre. And I know that it's been so long and a lot of time. I remember when I found out that Game Time was breaking up. You wow. guys had come to Pittsburgh and you stayed at our old bass player Brian's house, I believe, for a while. And yeah. uh, we went to go see Lost Profits and Midtown play a show where we both were flyering. And, yeah, and I remember mm -hmm. I was so young then too. I was like, this band is not is off on tour and they are going to shows in a city that's not their hometown and flyering the line and being like, well, fuck, maybe that's something we need to do. And then our next <laughs> tour, we booked a tour based on that concept. We played a show and then we had a day off, but it was surrounded around a bigger tour. So we would follow and route our tours around a bigger tour, whether it was Warped, wow. which we all have done at some point, but... Sure. Um, another tour. We, we followed a Paramore tour around in 2007 
where we play show, then go and fly her at Paramore. Like, it's just like the things that went, that went down then, dude, were just second to none. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just, I, I just am so glad that we experienced that. Nobody will ever understand it. Nobody will get it. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing to kind of explain to people. Game time, it's crazy now because I still, I'll be going to a random restaurant in Kansas City and we'll go up to the bar and the guy's like, you were in game time, weren't you? <laughs> Dude, it's been so long. <laughs> it just, it still happens occasionally, but it's crazy to think. So we were flyering a Midtown show out of town. Yes, you were in Pittsburgh, two of the dude, two of you guys, because I was going that day. I just came down to say what's up to you guys. I remember this vividly. And then Autopilot Off was playing a much smaller show that I went to to flyer because we had some big show coming up or something like that. Um, okay. And you guys were there flying the show. And then I don't know if you guys ended up going to the show or not, but that work ethic, just it, like the you guys and the punchlines and like the patent pendings, like it rubbed off on me so hard because I didn't okay. know that that could happen. Like I didn't yeah. know that that's what you were supposed to do. And I, I mean, again, man, you know, you got you game time holds a very special place in my musical memory. <laughs> well, thank you, man. I appreciate the kind words. I don't want to take up too much more, more of your time. I appreciate you talking to me. This has been a lot of fun. We should just do this again. Like, do you want to do this again? We should Instagram live it on one of our one of our platforms. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a blast. Yeah, I was going to ask you another question. You're not taking up time, by the way. Like, I would much prefer to talk about <laughs> this stuff than anything. Yeah, else you know, have. Monday is like one of my more chill days. I don't really have to go anywhere until noon because I just have four clients on Monday, so it's my lighter day. You're you're um, an hour behind there, or two hours behind? So it's eleven, twelve here. So I'm an hour. Okay. Okay. Behind you. Yeah. Kind of random segue. I don't know if you're that Rufio flyer or that yeah. that poster. Did you see that Scott was looking for that one the other day? I did. On I Facebook. saw a face. So yeah. I wasn't about to, to uh, relinquish that. <laughs> Dude, I have so many. I have, fuck. I don't know if I have, if it's here or if it's, I have a game. To, I, you guys played Pittsburgh area twice, I think only. You played yeah. at the Glassport Scarlet Theater, which I have. And then you played in Charleroi, PA, which is like another hour south. And I remember I have both those flyers. Both those flies for both those shows. Oh, wow. Um, okay. That's cool. I have a massive collection, dude, of like posters from fr- throughout the year. I mean, I'm not that's even rad. sure what else is here. Oh, cool. Well, no, that's not. Well, anyway, but not, on, on the other side here, like, well, dude, I like, can see the Leston Jake one with the blink, the blink tour, the, dude, they, the Uranus tour. Uranus. Yeah. Uranus. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, I got, I got starting line one. I mean, my, here, here's a better question. Top, and we can, we can conclude here. I know you got to get going soon. Top three albums from that time period, in your opinion? Oh, man. I was actually going to ask you the, the same question. So you, ha- you definitely have to tell me your three. Okay, so this is always difficult because what time frame are we talking about? Are we talking like 2000 to 2004? Yes. Oh, shit. That's hard. Better question. Are, those, are any of those albums in that time frame in your top 10 of all time? I would say yes. I'm not the type of person who, of course, I love big pivotal records. I love classic rock. I love bands like Radiohead and, you know, a lot of the early 90s grunge stuff. I grew up with that stuff, too. And but if I'm going to if I'm talking about my favorite records of all time, these are the records that I'm going to take with me. If I could never have any other records again, these are the ones that I want to remember and I want to listen to. You know, it's like Indiana Jones. I'm going to be watching Indiana Jones until I'm 80. You know, it may not be the best film of all time, but it's my favorite film of all time. <laughs> so Ocean Avenue is definitely one. So Simon's Takeover was like... It was a huge deal. 
Yeah, I was such a fanboy of the band and, you know, I booked shows and I did an episode for the podcast where I just talk about the stories behind when I first met Yellow Card and just kind of leading up to the release of Ocean Avenue and everything. And that record, I was such a fan of the band. I was such a huge fan of One for the Kids too. I loved One for the Kids. It was completely different, but you could see like it made sense them going from this tiny independent band with these songs that had really kind of odd song structures and then into the underdog EP, which was a little bit more streamlined. And then working with Neil Avron. And at that point, he'd already done the first two Newfound Glory full lengths. So I knew what he was going to do with them. So it made sense at the time. But Ocean Avenue, I just have special memories attached to that one. Dude, that's um, a, I always wondered what like what the conversation was like when they went. Like I knew they, they were on Lobster. Then they upstreamed to a major, but they released it on Fueled, correct? Yeah. And what's interesting is I never really understood what the deal is, or maybe they told me at one point, I feel like we had a conversation with it back then. They signed to Capital, and Capital wanted to give the illusion that they were still an independent band. So they licensed, I'm not sure if they had already recorded the Underdog EP or if Capital gave them the money to record the Underdog EP, but they basically licensed it to Fueled by Ramen. They didn't release it. And they were trying to give the illusion that this band was grassroots tearing up to their major label debut, which was going to be Ocean Avenue. And what's interesting too. Was it already written at that point? No, they had, they had some demos coming out of the end of 2002. They had a couple demos and Capital wanted them to uh, hold off on releasing Powder. They liked Powder. They thought Powder was going to be a single, which is really weird because that's kind of like a darker, slower, more brooding song. It wouldn't really fit on Ocean Avenue, I don't think. Yeah, just completely different. It definitely had like that kind of saves the day Alkaline Trio-esque-ness to it. And they wanted them to hold on to a couple songs from Underdog EP, but then they they ultimately decided to just release it as an EP. And then Yellow Card found out that they were working with Neil Avron. Originally, they were going to work with Eric Valentine. And I guess there's a funny story where he showed up to a show to watch them play and he wasn't on the guest list. So he just <laughs> peaced out. <laughs> yeah. But I remember, so game time, we played a show in LA and we were staying with our good friend, Keith, who was in a band called Off the Record. And we went down, they were on Tooth and Nail and it was his birthday. So we bought him tickets to this show in San Diego where Yellow Card was playing. It was like this, it was New Year's from 2002 into 2003. That night it was going into the new year. And there was a big show at the Soma where Strung Out, Yellow Card, Good Riddance, Homegrown. There was just like a ton of bands. Pennywise played, Gob. It was insane. But it was like, it was like an indoor amphitheater and there was two stages and they were just going back and forth. And that was the first night we heard Way Away. So they had a couple of the songs written for Ocean Avenue. They, they played it that night. But they didn't release the album until July. Right, right. I mean, because there's a whole sorts of drama around that band. And I had Yellow Card at Four Chord in 2015, which was a fucking nightmare. And oh, I, never, I never want to have a conversation with Ryan Key ever again in my life. <laughs> um, he's, a, he's a total fucking prima donna. And I mean, I just can't even, I, I know I've such a DIY ethos. Like I can't even speak the language anymore. When I, whenever people ruin my perspective, other dudes were awesome in that band. Sean yeah. was so, so nice. Tucker Sean's Rule, a sweetheart. T- Tucker Rule was, fill, was playing drums with him. He was awesome. The dude from Staring Back, guitar player, he's a Detroit Red Wings fan. I'm a Penguins fan. So that was a little weird, but nonetheless, <laughs> uh, yeah. But but I just listened to a podcast. I can't remember. Was it Mike Carrera's podcast that Wait, had ben? ben on? Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. I just can't. I can't sift through. I like, guess Ben 
you know, where's Ben on this? Where's Ryan? Like, it's very hard for me to see where that, where that, um, animosity was derived from. Is it Ben's fault? Yeah. So I'm not asking you to answer. I just remember if you didn't see, hear that podcast, it's an awesome podcast. And I think Mike actually has asked Ryan to be on to give another story, whether oh, cool. he will or not. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he will. They, that band, there was definitely some tumultuous times. I feel like they could probably write a book and it would be a very interesting book. I experienced similar things with Ryan specifically, even back then. I think the fame got to his head a little bit. And he even talks about that. Like he says it, it did. And I'm hoping there's been some good perspective from that. I first met Yellow Card in 2001. I booked their first show in Kansas City and Lawrence. Hmm. And that's how I got to become friends with them. And they they played with Game Time. And I think they were appreciative of the fact that we we brought kids out to the show and they were amazing live, of course. So they, they made a lot of fans early on in Kansas City and stuff. But yeah, Ocean Avenue is definitely up there. But as far as like two other records from that time period, Bleed American, definitely Bleed American. I feel like that one stood the test of time. Unreal uh, album. Jimmy World's my top five favorite band of all. Just classic band. But Bleed American's not, I don't love Bleed American. Really? Yeah, really? yeah I that's like my favorite. Yeah, that's my favorite Jimmy album yeah, for sure. I just didn't, I thought that, I thought that um, Clarity was better. And then I, I, Futures for me is the best album they ever released. It's weird. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, what's so crazy is Clarity is probably definitely top 20 records of all time for me. So that's a very time and place record. I just remember exactly where I was listening to that. And Futures is great too. Futures is just an, a phenomenal record. I, I went to that anniversary tour and it was so good. Wow. I hear they're great guys too. I actually train the drummer from the Casket Lottery and he's done some tours with them. And oh, cool. He talks, he talks very highly of those dudes, I've which heard is really cool to hear. Only heard Yeah, man. I don't know. It's kind of a toss up. A lot of those albums kind of sit in the same level for me. I'm just thinking... You found Glory self-titled, Rufio, perhaps I suppose, Homegrown Kings of Pop, you know, Finch, <laughs> yeah, what it is to burn. We're the same person, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see, I'm, I'm not, I, I wouldn't put Ocean Avenue as high, but for me, unequivocally, number one album, the best pop punk album ever written is So Long a Story by the Ataris. That is the best, that, that makes me fucking feel things that I didn't know that I was capable of feeling. Even yeah, to this day, I know that the Ataris, they're playing four chord, so I hope he doesn't hear this, but they've been through a lot of messes throughout their- Oh, sure. Um, yeah. post, post I think Chris story. would attest to that. Uh, but, but I mean, uh, there's no question Chris Rowe's songwriting ability is, even to this day, the new shit he released is phenomenal. But it's the Atari, So Long Storia, Say It Like You Mean It by the Starting Line, probably Blink, uh, Dude Rancher, Enema of the State for me. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just like, how do you choose? I don't even know, looking back, how would I ask you that question? It's, but like, dude, it's, it's really like, difficult. Lesson Jake's on there. Fall Out Boy, Take Us to Your Graves on there. Uh, Motion City Soundtrack's on there. You know, Newfound Glory Self-Titled is on there. I mean, that album is just yeah. like, just like next level. I, I just cannot, I cannot believe we lived through that. And when I, when I think back, <laughs> like I was at Newfound Glory Midtown RX Bandits during the snowstorm of 2000 and 2000. And there was 15 people at that show at an industrial Crazy. theater with no AC or no heat. Wow. I mean, I just can't even, I can't even believe, you know, I wish that, I wish the kids now could could understand how important that time was for the entire genre. But but pop punk's yeah. dead. Pop punk is dead. <laughs> for sure. 
It's, I think it'll always be fun. Fat Mike says punk music, pop punk music. It's just the most fun music. So it's always going to be popular. There's always going to be incarnations of it somewhere and versions sure. of it somewhere. But yeah, I mean, just so many pivotal albums around that time. Take This to Your Grave. What a great pop punk record. Just oh. influenced so many bands. And then, yeah, if you're including Enema, Enema is probably up there in top three as well. It's weird because that kind of like kickstarted it all. I tend to go back to Dookie. Dookie is being like the, the force multiplier of that time period. But I don't know if Dookie influences many bands as Enema of the State did around that weird, time period. Right? It's yeah. so weird how that happened. It's almost yeah. like Green Day. Green Day was like, I think it has to do with branding. I really do. Green Day was like associated with more of the grunge world. You know, they were with when Nirvana, you know, post Nirvana, you know. It's just like, it seems like they got grouped in that, in that popular world. And it's yeah. like, just like the perfect storm. Like, can you imagine if Blink would have released Enema of the State in 2008? Like it wouldn't have hit if they released it. I don't it think it would have. Yeah. If they released it in 94, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. You know, it's, it's unbelievable what timing has to do with, with the way the band succeed or don't yeah. succeed too. And branding, like you said. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge part of it. I remember the first time I watched the video for What's My Age Again, where they're running around naked. And I just thought, this is absolutely perfect. Like, they're going to be the biggest band in the world. I was like 16 years old when that came out, or 15 years old. But I knew, I knew it was, this is the perfect representation for them. At that point, I'd already seen them live a couple times. And they were larger than life personalities, two lead singers. They were really funny. They were basically like a, a traveling comedy show plus rock and roll band, pop punk band. And that video came out. This song is so catchy and that video is just perfect. It's that just song, man, that song did it for me. I remember the moment in time I saw that. I was 13, 13 I think I was 13 years old when that came out. I remember where I was, what I was thinking. I mean, I, I, uh, I always try to think about it. The only way that I could possibly get through to people how important that time was for me. And I think for many people is to do a documentary on it. And I really, yeah. I really want to do it. Like I just can think about interviewing you and, and Nick, you know, or interviewing, you know, the guys from punch like at the sub level, as well as the popular level, just to show the progression of like the domino effect that blink when blink hit, like it was, it was over, you know, yeah. I mean, and, and then new, I mean, you can name it in order. Then like newfound introduces the pop up with a little more of a hardcore edge. Then you get some 41 that introduced pop up with more of a metal edge. Then you get, you see the offspring. Then you see like a simple plan rise straight from really nothing. You know I mean? If yeah. You think about that. I mean, it's just every, every, there's a storyline with everything. Um, yeah. And then the work tour, how that played a role into popularizing it. It's just the yeah. perfect storm. I mean, it was the perfect storm. It was. Yeah. You should do it, man. That'd be fun. Cool. Well, yeah, you, you can, we'll do a Kickstarter for it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, I was, I, I'm thinking of doing, I've been thinking about it for years. It's just such, that's a full-time gig to do something like that. So yeah, that's a big, big undertaking, big project for sure. To do it correctly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But we should do this we'll again, dude, for real. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. Dude, we'll, we'll definitely do another round. This has been a lot of fun. And if, and yeah. if four chord happens, I will do my, I mean, you know, when I said I want you to play, I mean it 100%. You know, I just, I need to figure out, you know, in terms of, you know, lineup and space. I don't want to throw you on at 11 a.m. Sure. You know what I mean? And you guys come out here and not be on the main stage. You know, so it would have to be some logistical things. But, yeah, know, the invitation Dude. is wide open, whether it's this year or next year. You know, and I would urge you, and this is my one last pitch, as maybe one of the top 15 biggest game time fans, I really urge you guys to – 
put all whatever shit is aside and all if there is shit you said there was no shit but whatever yeah. shit there may, may or not be over the years and the rust i urge you to at least go and track one of your best song or two from that takeover days rework them do it remote and see what it sounds like what do you have, well, i mean what more you you wouldn't lose anything doing that That'd be a lot of fun too. Yeah, we've talked about it because we were mulling over the idea of recording just like a couple new songs too, just for fun. Because it's it is kind of easier now. There's just easier sources to do it. We don't have to necessarily spend a couple thousand dollars and go into a legit recording studio and all this stuff. We could just work with one of our friends who's got a small home studio and and have a mix by somebody. You know, you can have yeah. a mix by somebody. You know, um, yeah. I urge you to do that. If there's anything I can do to convince you guys to do that. <laughs> we can do Facebook Live to air all of our grievances and make it a public debate forum. <laughs> I love that. I think you just convinced me, actually. I, I think <laughs> uh, I think we'll do it. But yeah, I just I appreciate you even thinking of us, and I'm honored that you would even ask us. We would love to do it. I talked to Nick a few weeks ago, and he hit up Caleb, the guy that eventually took over for Kyle, and he's still doing music. He's still a couple of uh, cover band gigs, and because you guys did start open an Instagram page of old photos. Okay. Yeah, that's that's me. I I did that. Well, yeah, I was yeah. like, oh fuck, this is it. It's happening. And then yeah, yeah, that was one of the things that kind of prompted that because I've got a bunch of old photos and I was going to go through the history of game time on an Instagram forum just so we have it available and just go down memory lane. A lot of people have been sending me photos and videos and stuff, so that's been fun. I have some too, for sure. I uh, you know, I think you know, at this point, it wouldn't. You're not proving any point. You know, I mean, it's not like you're 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 trying to be the biggest band in the world, but I mean, I think that it would it would maybe you being able to see what what those songs would end up being played out. I mean, I have no idea what they even sound like. I'm like, I can't, I always talk to my friend, like I, have a, like I said, a group of friends that like I grew up with in the scene that are all in bands and have been in bands, some successful, some not successful, but we're all really good friends. Like, dude, like we all, I can't, I, I mean, I know it sounds fucking weird. 15, you know, 15 years later, a band that was about to maybe blow up, you know, that I, we still listen to, we still listen to it all, man. I mean, I would <laughs> to put it on spotify too if it isn't already yeah i went ahead and put it on there last year i already have all the mp3 so i would have no purpose to yeah yeah i was gonna say you're you're way ahead of the curve i had so many people reaching out to me like hey can you send me those songs because i i don't have them on my, on my itunes anymore i switch computers or switched ipads and i went ahead and threw them up there i have an acoustic version of you guys playing time standstill yeah that was one of the last things we did yeah i have i mean i, I don't know i don't even know where i got them probably pure volume or mp3.com or yeah <laughs> you guys should do well, it i think you should absolutely do it and um you know when you guys are ready to do full length four chord music and put it out bro <laughs> that'd be fun man you're the first person i'm coming to with that okay dude I'm we in. ever do it i'm in all right man well dude this has been a blast it's been a lot of fun talking to you and catching up and stuff we'll definitely do this again if you're up for it i'll keep in touch for sure, we'll, we'll chat on the interwebs for sure man let me know if i can be All any right. help in any way shape or form with anything you're doing cool man yeah and if you're ever in kc or lawrence let me know okay i'll let you know all right brother all right i'll let you go have Peace. a great rest of your day okay you as well all right see you buddy